Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. About 3,000 years ago, a little over, a little sleepy village called Bethlehem, a story unfolded. There was a family trying to farm during bad times. Some of you may know about that as your background may be in farming and you can remember maybe some lean years and this poor family just couldn't make a go of it. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi and they had two boys, it's probably more than you want to know, but their boys' names were Malon and Killian. And things got so bad and it was so hard to put food on the table that after a while the family decided to do what was the unthinkable and that was to sell part of their land. Lamb is very sacred to the Jewish people. They understood that God had created the land and that, well, as a friend of mine who's been in the building business for a lot of years always reminds me, they're not making any more dirt. And so uh, God had intended for the people to hold on to their land from generation to generation as a legacy, as an inheritance. And it was so big with God that every 50 years, if land had been sold during hard times, it would be the year of Jubilee, then all the land would revert back to its rightful owners. But the year of Jubilee wasn't going to help Elimelech and Naomi, 50 years away, you could starve during that time, and so they began to sell part of their land, and if they sold their land, here's how it would go down. They would have to go down, I started to say go downtown, but downtown Bethlehem didn't have any skyscrapers. They, they would go down to the place where public records were held and kept, and something would happen. In time past, if you were going to sell a piece of your land, or maybe you had bad times that caused you to have to sell it, maybe it was a bankruptcy, Two scrolls would be created and filed. One scroll would be the terms of how you lost your land, whatever happened, bankruptcy, bad debts, whatever went wrong that caused you to lose your land. And then a separate scroll would be created to spell out the terms of redemption, what it would take to buy it back. But as times got tougher and the materials on which they wrote were more precious, they finally got it down to where they just used one scroll, and they would write on both sides. On one side would be the things that went wrong that caused people to lose their land, and because that was sensitive and because it could embarrass people, it would be rolled up and sealed on that side, and of course, on the other side would be written the terms of redemption. That must have been how it went down for Elimelech as he sold a piece of land and thought, well, maybe things will turn around. And start getting rain and can have some crops, but it didn't get any better. And so they had to sell another piece of land and another piece of land until finally they had to sell the homestead. And now they were basically homeless. And if the unthinkable was selling their land, Elimelech one day came and announced to his wife Naomi and his boys that they were going to do the unimaginable. They were going to leave Bethlehem. They were going to leave Judah, the place of God, and move to a place called Moab, it might not mean a whole lot to you and me, but Moab, the Moabites, were one of the cruelest people that the Israelites ever dealt with. It was a nation that was founded in incest and got worse from there. It was totally idolatrous, totally pagan. 
and the worship of this place, well, I'll try to be as euphemistic as I can. They worshiped a god named Chemosh or Molech, which was, it was, an, it was an image, but more than just an idol image, a large idol image, the belly of this idol was an oven. And they would stoke the fires of this oven, and in an attempt to appease their gods, they would bring their babies and burn them alive as sacrifices in this place called Moab. That's why I say that for Elimelech and Naomi, good Jewish people that they were, who worshiped Jehovah God, for them to move to a place like Moab, unbelievable, but they had lost everything. They had filed for bankruptcy, and bankruptcy didn't mean protection back in those days. There was food in Moab, and for a while, yes, indeed, they were able to put food on the table. And the boys, Malon and Kilion, they reached marrying age while they were in Moab, and Oh, talk about a violation of God's law and God's protocol. These boys married Moabite girls. One boy married a girl named Orpah. Not Oprah, just Orpah. It's close. And Orpah was a nice girl, sweet girl. And I think that in Moab, she, she was a pretty good wife. And the other boy married a, a girl named Ruth. Well, as many of us have experienced, even if you're a God follower, Bad decisions, bad decisions lead to bad outcomes. If you were part of the last series, you know that when we disobey God, we don't get blessing. We get a future that's not as good as it could be. And that happened to this family. And one by one, the lights of the male members of the family begin to flicker out. Elimelech died, and then one by one, the two boys died. And one day, Naomi woke up, middle-aged, life shattered, realized that all she had left in the world were two Moabite daughters-in-law. And Naomi said, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know what I'm going home to, but I'm going home. I'm going back to Bethlehem. And so she called her daughters-in-law in and said, girls, you know, I love you very much, but I got to go back home and I don't have anything to offer you. I'm middle-aged and my life, is, my life is over. Her hair was gray and her face careworn. And Naomi said, I, in kind of Sad humor, she said, you're not going to wait around. I'm not going to have any more children, and if I did, you wouldn't wait for them to grow up. So go on back home, go back to your families, and go back to your culture. I'm going back to Bethlehem. And Orpah was sad, and she cried at, at that moment, but Orpah, after a while, kissed Naomi goodbye and turned around. Ruth was made of different stuff. Although Ruth had grown up in Moab like the dove that Noah released from the ark, Ruth could find nothing in Moab that satisfied her soul. And she said to Naomi, what are some of the greatest words in the Bible? She said, don't make me leave you. I'm going with you. Your people will be my people. Your land will be my land. And what a statement, your God will be my God. And so Naomi and Ruth set off for Bethlehem. When they got there, I have no idea how they lived. I don't know if they camped in the fields because they didn't have a place to live. Maybe they lived with friends or relatives. But they were just eking out a, a meeker subsistence. It was a rule that God had for poor people back in the day so that they wouldn't have to sit and beg. God instructed people that when they had their harvest, landowners, when they had their harvest, that if any grain fell while they were in the process of harvesting, they would leave it on the ground. They were not to pick it up. They were to leave it on the ground for poor people who could come in after the harvesters and, 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 and pick up the grain. They were also instructed not to harvest the corners of their field, but to leave it for the poor. And so Ruth 
wanting to get food, enough food to live that day, for she and her mother-in-law went to the fields to what they called glean. While she was there, she caught the attention of a guy. I'm, the first reason I think that she caught Boaz's attention is, you know, Boaz had heard about Ruth. I'm sure that when Naomi came to town, without her husband, without her boys, penniless, and everybody in the town saw her with a Moabite girl trailing behind, everybody thought, what's that about? But little by little, they found out that Ruth was very unusual, but th- that Ruth was better to her mother-in-law than a son or a daughter would be to their natural biological mother. And the word began to ripple through the community that Ruth was kind of special. And Boaz, when he first saw Ruth, he knew about her and knew that that was unusual. That I mean, after all, here was a girl that came from a place that Boaz couldn't even imagine. He thought that nobody good came from Moab. But here's Ruth, and, and she just stood out to him. And then, of course, secondly, she uh, stood out to him for the reason why beautiful girls stand out to guys. And so Boaz started kind of showing favor, and he, 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 he whispered to his guys who were harvesting some of the most beautiful words in the Bible, and I've loved them since I was a kid. He, he said, leave some handfuls on purpose. In other words, accidentally drop some grain on purpose for Ruth. And when the time came for lunch, Boaz invited Ruth to share lunch with his staff. And at the end of the day, he just basically gave her a truckload of grain to take home. And when Naomi saw Ruth coming, she knew something unusual had happened. And she asked about it. She said, well, well Mom, there's a guy down there that's sort of like paying attention to me. And, and Naomi said, well, what's his name? And, and Ruth said, his name is Boaz. And at that moment, Naomi's eyes had to light up like Christmas lights. And Naomi said to Ruth, babe, he's qualified. Now, Ruth surely wanted to know, what does qualified mean? And that's when Ruth got a lecture from Naomi about the law of the kinsman redeemer. Because see, the law was such that if property was lost because of a bankruptcy or debt, not just anybody could go down to the courthouse and buy it. It was to be bought back, it had to be bought back by somebody who was a relative of the male, especially if a male had died. It had to be a relative of the male. And that relative, if, the, if, the, if that male had left a widow, that relative became subject to marrying the widow. And at that point, he was able to go and redeem everything that had been lost. It had to be a kinsman, and it had to be somebody who was willing. Redeem means to buy back, to buy back everything that was lost. And that's why Naomi said to Ruth, babe, he's qualified. He's related to your husband. And the story, you can read this in the marvelous book that bears her name. There are only four chapters in this little love story. I'll do a series on it someday. (laughs) Ruth said to Naomi, what do I have to do to get this thing going? And Naomi basically said, I only have to do one thing. And she taught her how to do this. You just need to say, basically, I want to be redeemed. And you can read about it. It happened. Boaz did, and there was a wedding and a marriage, and, 
and he bought back the land. It became the families again because Boaz was wealthy, and Boaz and Ruth, you know, they had a wonderful life together, and they had kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, and one of those great-grandkids, you know, down the lineage turned out to be a guy by the name of David, and if you follow the lineage long enough, as Matthew tells us in his gospel, they had a great-great-great-great-grandson whose name was Jesus. Let's go to Revelation now. Whatever Revelation is, is a book, it's chronological. Revelation starts off with the things that are, which would be chapters 1 through 3. The age that you and I live in right now is called the church age, and I'm not going to develop this a lot today, but next week we'll go in detail. But, but basically, as we saw last week in Daniel's prophecy, Daniel said that at, at the end of 483 years, the Messiah would, would die appearing to accomplish nothing, leaving seven years in the future before that 490-year prophecy would come to pass in which Daniel said everything is going to be made right. So when Daniel talked about 490 years and everything being made right, you and I know that hasn't happened yet. The clock stopped at year 483. There's seven years out in the future for God to finish his business. We will discuss that next week, and I'll show you how it all works out. We're in a window of time between the 483rd year and the seven years left. This window of time, the name we give to it is called the church age. Basically, here's the deal. God the Father had a relationship with the people, and that relationship was with Israel. God the Father is in an everlasting covenant with the nation of Israel, and that will play out in the future. Again, I'll talk about it next week. But his son Jesus, who is the Messiah, he also wants to have a people. That's the reason why Israel in the Old Testament is presented as the bride of God. The church is presented to us as the bride of Jesus. Jesus has a people as well. And right now, we're living in that time frame. Now, if you open up Revelation and you go into chapters 2 and 3, which we're not going to cover, what you find are seven messages to seven different churches. Jesus is giving his messages to the churches. But when you leave chapter 3 and you move into chapter 4, something very different has occurred. And if you want to read through the book of Revelation and understand at least the chronology of it, let me, let me just show you what the book, how the book of Revelation is laid out. Chapters 1 through 3 are messages to the church age. It's for the time that is right now. Chapters 4 and 5 all chapters 4 and 5 really start with the concept of the rapture. Now, that's a term that we use inside the church. It may be a new term to you. It just simply means when Jesus comes back for his, for his own. Now, when we, hear, when, you talk, when we hear somebody talk about the second coming of Jesus, remember this. Jesus is coming back twice, not once. He is coming back, first of all, for his people, and then seven years later, he is coming back with his people. What we're talking about is that first coming. It's given to us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And the Bible tells us at an unannounced time, at an unannounced moment, when, 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 when we don't know, Jesus is coming back. And we call it the rapture because what happened was your, your Greek New Testament was translated into Latin. The word for being snatched away is very close to the word for rapture, and that's how it got into our language. Simply put, here's what it means. There is a moment when Jesus is coming back. It will happen in an instant. The Bible tells us this, first of all, the dead in Christ, those who have died in past generations, will be raised first, and then those, perhaps of us, who are still alive at the coming of Jesus, we will, we will go too. Now, don't sweat the fact that you're going to be second if you're still alive, because the Bible says it will happen in a twinkling of an eye. The experts say that's one one-thousandth of a second. So if somebody comes up first, and it's all going to take place in one one-thousandth of a second, what difference does it make, right? But the important thing is, 
that will be the end of the church age. And then the clock will start ticking to fill out those seven years. Again, I'll explain all this next week. But the the reason why I'm bringing this up is chapters 4 and 5 talk about what goes on in heaven as soon as you and I get there. Chapters 6 through 19 talk about those seven years that we call the tribulation period. So basically what I think is what happens in chapter 4 and what happens in chapter 6 are simultaneous. Chapter 4 is what happens in heaven, chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 6 is what happens here on the earth for those people who are left behind. Now what's cool for me about this is this whole series is about heaven. And, and I, wanna, I want us to know what we're going to see when we get there. You know, a lot of people have, as I said last week, a lot of people have a lot of crazy and sappy ideas about heaven. What I love about Revelation 4 and 5 is it dials it in for us. And here's what's cool. You're going to find out that the people in heaven are doing what you just did a little while ago. If last week's message was called the story, this week's message is called the songs. Okay? If you have your Bibles, then you can just sort of walk through this with me. It's great. If you don't, there'll be some of this stuff up on the screen, and then you can check me out when you go home and, and, and see what we're talking about. But okay, let's go into chapter 4, and it's kind of interesting how the language is. And, and, and let me give you one more preparatory comment, and then we'll get down to business here. When you read through Revelation, there, there are three things that you want to focus on. Number one, what does God say clearly? Okay? In other words, what's the message that there's no, there's no question about? what God is saying. He's just spelling something out very clearly. Then secondly, there are a lot of symbols. And I'll tell you, people have argued about those symbols forever. You don't have to worry about figuring out all those symbols. I think there's a lot of stuff that's cryptic in nature, and those symbols will be relational to the people who are on the earth during that time. But here's the thing that I'm going to focus on as we go through Revelation. What's the point What's the point that God is trying to get across to us? Because all, as I was a kid, a lot of times growing up listening to a lot of ministers work through the book of Revelation, they would get all sidetracked and talking about some of these ancillary things that really don't matter. I mean, you know, I don't know what the beast is with seven heads and ten horns and all that kind of thing and, and where Babylon is and all that. I mean, that'll, that'll be salient to the people who are in the tribulation. I don't know what a lot of the symbols mean, but it's really clear most of the time to know the point that God is getting across. Now, I want us to go through Revelation 4 and 5 and focus on what's the point? What's the point of what you and I are going to see when we first get to heaven? The language of chapter 4, it's kind of interesting. It, it kind of tells us that it's, this is about the rapture because John, as you know, has been on the island of Patmos. Jesus appears to him, but now at the beginning of chapter 4, John hears two sounds. He hears a voice shouting and he hears the sound of a trumpet or the voice is like a trumpet. What does that make us think of? If you, if you like to study your Bible and you know about the rapture when Jesus comes back, the Bible says that two things are going to happen. There's going to be the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And so we have those same, th- same two things here at the beginning of Revelation chapter 4. Look at this. He said in, in verse 1, the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. So I believe that's symbolic of the rapture that takes place. So John hears the voice. Sounds like a trumpet. It says, come up here. And chapter 4, verse 1 says, there was a door opened in heaven. Now, door open in the Bible always speaks of opportunity. It always speaks of being granted access. Isn't it good to know that when the time comes for us, either by death or by Jesus coming back, there will be a door open for you and me in heaven? I like that. I wouldn't want to get to heaven and find a closed door, would you? Now, John said, here's the first, look at this. What is the first thing John sees? Go into verse 2. 
First thing he sees is a throne. Guys, what I, what I take away from this is the very center of heaven, the focal point of heaven is a throne. And John says there was somebody sitting on it. Maybe I'm being melodramatic today, but I got to tell you, it's a crazy world that we live in. And not my world, I am stressed up to my eyeballs. Is there anybody else like this? And I'm biting my fingernails and I'm dealing with all kinds of challenges. It does me good to know that somewhere up in heaven, there's a throne and there is somebody sitting on it. It is not a vacant throne. This morning, there is somebody sitting on the throne and there's no stress in heaven. Isn't that good to know? John says there's a throne. Now, and, and now we start getting into color, and I know that you guys at New Spring, you don't, you don't wonder about this, but, you know, there are a lot of people from very traditional churches, they take a look at our stage and say, man, you know, look at this, and, and look at all these colored lights and everything. What's the point? Well, what you're going to discover when you get to heaven is God is into lights and God is into colors. The reason why you and I appreciate these colors is that we bear resemblance to God. We bear the image of God, and because of that, we love beautiful colors, we love beautiful lights, and, and what's cool is when we get to heaven, John tells us right here that the images are like a diamond and ruby, but you know we measure diamonds and rubies by carats. Up in heaven, they measure it by the acre, and so around God's throne, the primary colors are like just huge amounts of dazzling diamond and huge amount of bright red ruby. What I love about this, though, is John says that the throne was emerald. It's green. Green, to me, is a sign of life. Later in the book of the Revelation, the Bible will tell us that God will judge from the great white throne. The people who are at this judgment are lost forever. They have rejected Jesus, and they're going to be judged by their sins. But now when God's people approach, they don't approach a white throne. They approach a green throne. Green is a sign of life. And, the, and this is what is so cool to me. The only symbol around God's throne is a rainbow, a rainbow. What's the point of a rainbow? You let the Bible interpret the Bible. First rainbow came after the flood. When God said to Noah, I'm going to put my rainbow here as a sign of my promise that you will never be judged again. Wow, this is so cool because when you and I approach the throne of God, it's surrounded by a rainbow and all who approach come under the understanding that this is a place that is based not on our performance but on the promises of God and that we, will, we are not coming to a place of judgment. Isn't that good to know? Now, moving down to verse 4, surrounding the throne of God, there are 24 small thrones, and there are 24 elders, we don't know exactly who they are, who are seating around the throne. But I do think we have some clues from Revelation. This is important to me of who these, who these people are. 24, it's a salient number. Think about it. Later on, when we see the New Jerusalem, and that'll probably be the last talk that I give you from the Hereafter series, the New Jerusalem, which is the capital city of heaven, it has 12 gates. And the Bible says that on the name of these, on these 12 gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Then there are 12 foundations. And on the names of the foundations, or on the foundations are the names of the 12 apostles. Now, the 12 tribes of Israel, is that Old Testament, New Testament? That's Old Covenant, right? These are the believers from the Old Covenant. They didn't know who the Messiah was. But they were saved by faith just like you and I are saved by faith. They weren't saved by works. Basically what they did when they brought sacrifices, they were like putting down a credit card to say, we believe that someday God is going to send his lamb who is going to be the perfect, sac perfect sacrifice for sin. And so basically they were just rolling their sin forward. But by faith, they looked forward to Jesus coming. Twelve apostles, that Old Testament, New Testament. That's New Covenant, isn't it? That's church age. 
This is Jesus' group. So you got the Father's group in Israel, and you got Jesus' group in the church. I think 12 and 12, that adds up to 24. My guess is that what these 12, 24 elders represent is God's people from all ages. So when we all get to the throne room of God, it's going to be you and me and others who are part of the church age and Martin Luther and, you know, and Billy Graham and, and great leaders who have been part of the church age. All of us will be together. And yet at the same time, we're going to be able to hang out with Ruth and Moses and Esther and the great people of God from the old covenant, symbolized by these 24 elders, all of God's people from all ages. Now, I like this in verse 6. It says that before the throne, it looked like a sea of glass. In other words, it's placid. It's peaceful by the throne of God. Now, also, too, in the throne room of God are not, the, not, not just these 24 thrones, but the Bible says there are four living creatures. Now, what we, what we can derive from this is these are cherubim. Cherubim are specially created angels. I think most of us have the idea that all angels look alike. You know, that they're all, you know, in white robes and they have angels and, and they all look the same. I think we're going to be freaked out when we get to heaven to find out that angels are very different. I mean, no telling what they all, I mean, God is, you just think about how diverse God is in his animal creation. We have no idea what the angels look like, but these seem to be very special angels who surround the presence of God. And now in this message, we're going to see the first song that is sung. And this is in chapter Four and look at verse eight. Day and night, they never stop saying or singing, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come." Sound familiar? We sing that here at New Spring, don't we? That's what's going on in the very presence of God all the time. These angels are so overwhelmed by how awesome God is. The very first song they sing is, "God, you're holy." Now, what does holy mean? Holy just means set apart. Holy means completely pure. You know, the thing about you and me is hopefully we're growing in God and we're dealing with sin and we're getting more like Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, we still have a lot of issues, don't we? Every human being in the world has got sin. What, what these angels are saying, God, you have no sin in you. You have no ugliness in you. You have no greed in you. You have no you know, unjust anger in you. God, you are holy. You are absolutely perfect. Now, What's cool, about the, the, what's cool about the worship of heaven is it just keeps, it, it just keeps setting, it, setting each other off. I mean, one group worships God, and then that, the next group, they can't sit still. So the Bible tells us that when these angels sing their song of holy, 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 you know, Lord God Almighty, which was and is to come, then the 24 elders, they can't sit still. You know, I don't know about you, but I can't sit still when we're worshiping here at New Spring. You know, the band's up here, and they start worshiping. I want to get up, don't you? I mean, because the elders are saying, wait a minute, we want to get in on this. But notice they sing a different song. In verse 11, they sing, you are worthy, our Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, I struggle with this in getting ready for this message, because I thought, why the different songs? And then it hit me. The angels knew God before creation. They knew God before there was a world. They knew God before there was a human race. And so these angels are singing to God the way they've known him. God, you've always been here. We've always known you. You've, you're the everlasting God. But then the elders, they're human beings. How do they know God? There was a point when we weren't on the earth. And so they start talking and singing about God's creation. Guys, I don't want to get on a soapbox this morning, but I am going for, for a moment. I'll get right back off. Heaven's a place for people who believe God created things. You know? 
Heaven is a place, and, and I know our world today, and I know the, you know, the idea that it's, you know, I had it taught to me from second grade on that, you know, there's such a thing as macroevolution and that, you know, God, God's never presented as part of the equation, that they're just, we're just here by accident in the process of natural selection. See, here's the thing. This world sets itself against God. And, and what I discover about these songs is that I find that I live in a culture that more and more pushes back against these messages. I live in a culture that pushes back against the song of the angels, that God has always been here, that he's the everlasting God, that he's sovereign, that he rules, that he's always good. I, I hear a lot of pushback against that because it seems to me that I live in a culture that more and more tries to push God out. And I was watching the news this week and I saw you know, a high school football game and Kids scored a touchdown and just knelt down briefly in the end zone to pray. And the referee pulled out the flag and threw the flag for unsportsmanlike conduct. And for just a moment, they were in the same image of this boy praying and this referee throwing the flag for unsportsmanlike conduct. And here's the thing. Some of us are sappy enough to say, well, he shouldn't have broken the rules. That's an image of the world you and I live in. Because this world system, and remember, what's wrong with this world system is it was surrendered over to the enemy in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned, and you and I sinned on top of that. Ever since that time, this world system has been set against God. But in heaven, they're not bothered by that. In heaven, they're not at all squeamish about saying, we believe you created everything. By the way, I believe that too. I've seen the evidence. I've read the fossil evidence. I'll just tell you this. To me, you talk about something that sets off my idiot alerts. The idea that all the intricacy of life and all of its splendor and all of its magnificence and its precision, that it could happen by random chance. I'm sorry, it just sets off all my idiot alerts. It makes all the bells ring and all the sirens go off. And here's the deal, and I'm just going to get on the soapbox for a minute because there's some of us as God followers, we're squeamish, and the reason we're squeamish is not that we have seen the evidence because it doesn't exist. We're squeamish because we want the approval of this world. What a foolish thing to do to take the glory away from your God who made you and be worried about somebody at the university. And please, I'm not saying this today because I'm trying to upset anybody. I just want you to wind up at the right place. In heaven, they give God glory. There should not be a chapter break at chapter 5. These chapter numbers were put in there centuries after just to help us find our way around the Bible. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 are the same story. Something changes, though, as you go into chapter 5. The father sitting on the throne has in his, well, I'll put the right hand out here. In his right hand, a scroll. It's sealed. And there's writing on both sides. You and I understand from the beginning of this talk what's in his hand. It's a title deed. On one side of that deed would be all of our bankruptcy. At the top of that scroll on the back side would be Adam and Eve's sin when they sinned against God. 
And they surrender God's kingdom over to the enemy, to the prince of this world, Satan. There will be the story of the Garden of Eden. But below that will be the story of every human being that has ever lived because how can we rip Adam and Eve because the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And on the backside of how paradise was lost and the future redemption of mankind is your story and my story. And it's sealed up. And on the other side is the terms of redemption. We would have to have a kinsman to pay the price. And the Father sits on the throne and he holds out the scroll. And the thing about it is, as much as he loves us, he cannot open the scroll because he is God. It is not his fault for losing it and he cannot redeem us because he is not our kinsman. We are human and he is God. And as John, in the throne room of heaven, sees the Father hold out that scroll, he well understands what's going on. Some human being has got to pay the price for redemption or else... The whole human race is forever lost. And heaven stops. All the praise, all the singing, everything stops. And the Bible says a strong angel steps up and asks, is there anybody who is qualified to break the seals? Is there anybody qualified to be a kinsman redeemer? John watches as the search takes place and they look around heaven and even though there are many people in heaven, there are the 24 elders that are seated around the throne with crowns of gold that were on their heads that are now cast at the feet of Jesus. And the elders all shake their heads because unfortunately they are on the side of the deed that says how the paradise was lost. Not Billy Graham, not Mother Teresa, not Martin Luther, not Abraham, not Moses, Not any of the apostles, not any of the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. The angels can't do anything about it because they're not our kinsmen. And the Bible says the search takes place in all through heaven and all under the earth and everywhere. Every human being is searched and there's nobody qualified to take the book from God and break the seals. And John in this moment is overcome with grief because he understands what's at stake. If nobody can open the book, then there will be no heaven for anybody. If nobody can open the book, every human being will have to spend eternity in the lake of fire that John would eventually write about in chapter 20. And it is at this moment that one of the elders says to John, let's read this together. Do not weep. Verse 5, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, he is able to open the scrolls in its seven seals. Verse six, then I saw a lamb. John turns looking for a lion and he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing. Very powerful language. It might not mean a lot to you and me because we're part of the new covenant, we're part of the church age, but back in the Old Testament, remember we said that when the people had to, when they, when they had to come make atonement for sins, they would bring a lamb 
And they would have the, the perfect, the, they would search for the perfect lamb in their flock, a little, little tiny ewe lamb, and they would keep it with them for four days so that they could get a feeling. I mean, it would become a pet. They would see what, what their sin was about to cost them, and then they would sacrifice that lamb. And for one year, the sin would be rolled forward to the next year. This is why when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming in John chapter 1, verse 29, remember he said, look, there's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's not just going to roll it forward for one more year and put it on some kind of plastic card in God's presence. He's going to take sin away. This is what John turns to see. He sees a lamb of God standing. Remember, Jesus died on a cross. He was slain, but now John said he's resurrected and he's at the throne. This is inside stuff here, but I was a little nervous about doing this series for Christmas. I couldn't have been more wrong. Isn't this the perfect Christmas series? I mean, here's the deal. If you want to know why you're lighting the lights, if you want to know why you're putting up the tree, if you want to know why you're giving gifts, if you want to know why you're celebrating, what you're celebrating is you have a kinsman. See, if Jesus had never come and been born in Bethlehem, we would never have a kinsman. See, we had to have somebody who was related to us. This is why God's plan worked. God had to somehow send himself into the world as a human being. Jesus, God and human at the same time. Human so he could be our kinsman and yet perfect so that he could be our redeemer. And when he came and took the scroll, the Bible tells us that all the elders fell down in worship. And then the Bible says they sang this song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Do you notice how that these songs are like narrowing down? First of all, the angels sing, you're the everlasting God. And then the elders sing, you are the creator. And now we're singing about Jesus as the redeemer. <laughs> I don't want to go over old ground, but guys, I got to tell you, it just seems to me that our world system is attacking every one of these messages. That God is God, that God is creator, that Jesus is the way to heaven. I know those are unpopular messages in our world but I don't plan to wind up here. I plan to wind up someplace else, and the message is very different up there. <laughs> so now we've, had, we've heard the angels sing, and we've heard the elders sing, and we've heard this big crowd in heaven sing. But then in verse 13 it says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. I've heard some big choirs sing. But imagine hearing a choir that has every human being in the human race and every living creature singing glory to God who lives forever. And I think when you and I get to that place, we're going to be so excited to be there. But what's cool for me today is that we don't necessarily have to wait till we get to heaven to start singing these songs, right? In fact, I'm going to ask the band to come right now because we're going to do something kind of cool. Um, we sing a song here at New Spring called the Revelation Song. And what you're going to see when you start singing this song is that it's a composite of the songs that are sung in heaven. So what's going to be really cool is you're going to be doing something right now in Wichita, Kansas that you know in heaven they're doing right now while we're doing it. We're going to be doing the same thing that they're doing in heaven. Would you stand up, please, and worship with me as we sing the Revelation song?
until we get to heaven, we say, oh, we did that at New Spring, right? <laughs> Guys, thanks for being here today. Oh, just a few more minutes. I want to do something here. I want to ask you a question, and, and please, the only reason I ask you this is, is, is for your heart and your benefit. Are you going? I mean, do you know for sure? See, this is the reason I say I hate religion. Religion won't get you there. Do, do you notice that nobody in heaven is singing about what they did? I, all these songs, you hear anybody singing, I deserve to be here. <laughs> I mean, all I hear is, God, you're awesome. God, you're creator. Jesus, you redeemed me. You bought me back. See, heaven is for, for, for people who, who know they're bankrupt. Heaven is for people who filed, filed spiritual bankruptcy. And they said, you're right, God, we lost it. But Jesus got it back, and we're putting our confidence in him. And so if you've never put your confidence in Jesus, let's do that right now. I mean, you can, get, you can basically get ready to go to heaven. I'd like for all of us to pray. If you're already someone who has had a relationship with, does have a relationship with Jesus, would you pray too? Just pray for those who are making this huge decision today. Remember, Naomi just told Ruth, just tell him you want to be redeemed. It still works today, okay? Let's pray. I'm going to pray it slowly. You can repeat it with me. And the important thing is that you mean it from your heart. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I'm bankrupt. Can't change my life. Can't undo my wrong. But I believe Jesus died in my place. I accept him as my savior, my kinsman redeemer. Forgive me and make me your child. In Jesus' name, amen.